Sure, I think, um, you know, making sure I understand the, ba the ballot sometimes has tricky questions and tricky, tricky wording and propositions. And I want to make sure I have an understanding, not just how a, a specific friend of mine endorses it or how, you know, a newspaper endorses it, but I want to make sure I understand it. That's a challenge without leaning into the biases of your friends. Uh, and do I do that sometimes? Sure, but also I trust that my friends have a better understanding of words than me. Laura De La Fuente is a writer and a performer in Austin, Texas. She is our co-host with host Amy Stansberry on this co-op podcast episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour, coming up next. Thanks to the local Austin singer-songwriters, the Tiara Girls, for lending us the song in the background. And now, on to our host, Amy Stansbury. Hi, everybody. It's time for another episode of the Austin Common Radio Hour. Um, this week, we're going to be continuing with our election education series with a conversation with the candidates who are running for city council in District 6, which is in Northwest Austin. Um, but before we go any further, I want to introduce you to Lara De La Fuente, who's going to be co-hosting the episode with me today. Hi, Lara. Hi, how's it going, Amy? Good. I'm so glad that you're able to join us. Um, I actually know Lara because of skee-ball. <laughs> yeah, we're nerds. <laughs> yeah, we're big skee-ballers. <laughs> um, yeah, so uh, at, at full, full Circle Bar here at 12th and Chicone in Austin. Uh, my wife, Monica, is a two-time national champ. I'd be remiss not to mention her clout. Uh, she is serious. She she's is like serious. a legit ski baller. Uh, oh, yeah. Oh, man. <laughs> she could hustle if that were a thing. Uh, <laughs> but, um, but, but, yeah, no, I'm so happy to be here. Yeah. And so uh, just to introduce you a little bit more, you're a local comedian here in town. Um, and you are usually with Cold Town. Um, can you talk a little bit about um, where people can find you now because with quarantine and stuff, but you are doing things online. I am doing things online. Yes. So uh, I am a co-host along with Mason Kerwick and Javi Ungo. Uh, we host a bi-weekly show on Cold Town's Twitch channel called Cold Town TV. So if you literally Google Twitch and Cold Town TV, it'll come up. Uh, and uh, bi-weekly, even tonight at 9 p.m., you can catch us hosting a show called Quarantine, uh, which is our... Yes, quarantine queer culture news roundup. Uh, and we will we'll get political. We'll talk about pop culture. Uh, we'll talk about hits from the 80s. Like there's uh, no no limits to what we'll what we'll talk about. Uh, and so, yes, again, tonight at 9 p.m. Biweekly after that, uh, Cold Town TV channel on Twitch. Awesome. And you also just got kind of a new gig. Do you want to brag about that a little bit? Yeah, uh, it's actually pretty cool. It's called the uh, CBS Diversity Showcase, uh, uh, which is a, um, they basically 5,000 people audition and try to get in. And uh, CBS liked my queer Latinx Heine and said, yes, we want you to be a part of this, which is pretty cool. So uh, found out just two weeks ago. Thank you. Literally start on Monday. Uh, so basically virtually I will be casting uh, or not casting, I'll be writing a sketch comedy uh, for a review that'll go up in January. Uh, so I'm very, very excited to get going there. Flash so cool. There. That was awesome. Really excited. Yeah. Cool. So I want to make sure that we um, head on into our show. We've got a ton to talk about today. Um, but before we get started, I always like to give a quick little civics recap at the top in case you're um, 
you know, not a obsessed with everything going on with city council like I am. Um, right now we have um, in this November election, which is early voting starts October 13th. Um, there are five city council races that are up for election. Um, district two, four, six, seven, and 10. Um, if you're not familiar, Austin is divided into 10 city council districts and each district is represented by one council member. And you can only vote for the council candidate in the district that you live. So if you live in one of those five districts, um, you will see a city council election on your ballot this November. Um, and the candidates who are running in District 6 that we're going to hear from in a bit are Jimmy Flanagan, who is the current city council member who represents that district, Mackenzie Kelly, Jennifer Mushtaller, and Dee Harrison. Um, and before we get to them, uh, Laura, I always like to ask um, whoever's co-hosting with me, like, what, what makes you interested and engaged in, like, government in general, local government? What makes you passionate and excited to, to vote? Sure. I think as a queer Latinx person, I see my diversity as something that will, you know, in one way shape my worldview. And on the other hand, I'll see how candidates are looking to support people like me and, and how people can, you know, help support my communities that I'm a part of. Um, I, I, I check off a lot of boxes, I think. So when I look at, at my, just my Latin community, I live in District 3 with Pio. So I'm going to see how is he impacting the community? What is he doing to um, help the infrastructure in those communities? Uh, and so I try to keep my ear to the ground in that way and, and stay informed. I think recently with uh, the protests surrounding George Floyd's death and everything that we're talking about with social justice issues, I've certainly learned more about budget and city budget. Um, Jimmy, I listened to a lot of those city council hearings uh, that were happening early on and, and I became even more knowledgeable of that breakdown of that pie chart. And uh, I, I think in some ways I feel fortunate to now uh, be more informed in, in that kind of way. So that's, um, I think my, my personal politics and also my personal identity has kept me wanting to be informed uh, in, in the decisions the city council is making. And can I ask, you know, this is one thing that I'm super interested in because we try and make us learning about local government and learning about um, the election easier for folks. Like, what do you find most difficult when you're trying to research your candidates, especially for some of these local smaller races further down the ballot? They don't tend to get as much media attention. Like when you're doing your research, what do you find um, difficult or frustrating? Sure. I think, um, you know, making sure I understand the, ba the ballot sometimes has tricky questions and tricky, tricky wording and propositions. And I want to make sure I have an understanding, not just how a, a specific friend of mine endorses it or how, you know, a newspaper endorses it, but I want to make sure I understand it. That's a challenge without leaning into the biases of your friends. Uh, and do I do that sometimes? Sure. But also I trust that my friends have a better understanding of words than me. Uh, and, and so uh, I think that's the biggest challenge is just breaking down the jargon uh, that, you'll, that you'll read uh, up and down the ballot. Awesome. All right, let's get right into it. I want to make yeah. sure we have time for the candidates. Um, so um, what we're going to do first is um, we'll have a series of questions for you all to answer. Each of you will have time to answer it. Um, we try not to keep super strict time limits. I might have to cut some of you off if you go too long, but for these first series of questions, let's try and keep it between a minute, two minutes, shorter answers, um, and then we'll reserve some time at the end for some deeper discussion. But um, to start, let's try and keep our answers on the shorter side of life. Um, to start, and let's keep these definitely to a minute, let's just do quick introductions. Who you are, why you're running for office, um, what your current profession is, um, Jimmy, let's start with you since you are the current city council member. That's um, an easy one to note. And why don't you take it away? Excellent. Thank you, Amy, Laura, John. It's great to be with you all on the show today. 
Um, my name is Jimmy Flanagan. I'm the current council member for District 6. I have lived in Northwest Austin for 20 years. I'm a former small business owner, former president of the LGBT Chamber of Commerce. I organized the Northwest Austin Co Coalition. I'm also the first openly gay man and the first Williamson County resident to serve on the city council. One point of interesting information about District 6, it's half Williamson County, half Travis County, almost to the voter, half and half. Uh, in the last six years, even before being a council member, I have held 60 different town halls and meetings and community events, listening and engaging on every topic facing the city. And I've turned that into solutions all across the district, roads and infrastructure, slowing the rise of government spending, being a policy innovator during the pandemic, helping small businesses, childcare and nonprofits, leading on citywide issues of affordability, equity and justice as the chair of the Public Safety Committee for the council. I have been endorsed by a lot of folks across the, across the city and certainly the Democratic Party uh, in Williamson County and the Democratic clubs and my overlapping Dem House members, uh, uh, the firefighters, EMS, uh, Statesman and Chronicle. And I will say my favorite thing out of the, the Statesman endorsement was their lead sentence where they described me as the fiscal conscience of the dais in their endorsement, uh, asking voters to support me for uh, re-election. But I am running for re-election because the work isn't done. There are obviously still critical issues facing the city. And while I spent four years working really hard to bring traffic solutions and pedestrian safety and other solutions to the district successfully, uh, there's still a lot of work left to do on homelessness and public safety reform and other issues that I am in a leadership position to do. Great. And what about you, Dee? Um, who are you and why are you running for office? Um, I'm Dee Harrison. I'm a candidate for District 6. I'm currently an emergency management consultant. Uh, I had some things lined up, but the COVID-19 pandemic and the shutdown kind of tossed a monkey wrench into those plans. Um, so I was following what the city council was doing. And, you know, they were doing a lot of good things and some that I disagreed with. Uh, then there were several things they did that I really disagreed with, so I decided instead of just, you know, moaning and groaning to my friends and neighbors and my family, you know, they said, well, step up and do something about it. So I did. I went down and filed to run. Um, when I first moved to Austin in the early 80s, uh, we were in the midst of our no growth period, you know, where growth was a bad thing. And we've changed a lot since then. Uh, now we understand that growth is a good thing. And, and I agree that growth is a good thing to a point, but you have to have a good strategy and a good plan on how to manage it. And that's why I'm running. So I'll turn it back to you. Great, thank you. And Jennifer, uh, who are you and why are you running? Thank you very much. So I'm uh, Dr. Jennifer Mushtaller. I am a board-certified obstetrician-gynecologist with over 20 years of experience. The last 10 have been at the North Austin Medical Center campus. Uh, my practice is Capital OBGYN Associates of Texas, and I've had the privilege of caring for many women and families for generations and across all parts of our, our city and all walks of life. Um, my husband and I have been married for uh, 21 years today, and we have two daughters. Um, I have a Leander ISD junior in high school and an eighth grader. Uh, I grew up in Houston where my father worked with NASA, so it really shouldn't surprise anybody that I have a love of science. I came to UT here on an academic scholarship to earn my bachelor's of science in electrical engineering and co-opt at the IBM campus while I was here. 
Uh, but my love of science combined with my desire to serve my fellow person actually led me into my career in medicine. That's where my true calling was. I earned my doctorate from Southwestern Medical Center uh, in Parkland and then completed my postgraduate in uh, Fort Worth. And during that time, I worked in the Parkland Psychiatric Emergency Room and later in the Tarrant County Jail Clinic for female inmates. We've been back in Austin for the last 13 years. Uh, during this time, I've been uh, managing the, the practice and uh, owned it for a number of years. I've been serving on a Medicaid physician advisory panel for the Central Texas region. And I'm also serving on the Texas Health and Human Services Commission on Ethics and Informed Consent. I got involved civically when my neighborhood was annexed into the city of Austin, and I'm now serving as the president of the River Place Homeowners Association and Limited District. I decided to run after being asked by neighbors and neighborhoods um, to bring better representation to District 6 in Austin on the issues of safety and public health and homelessness, homelessness, property rights, and fiscal responsibility. And in particular, I agreed to, work, to run because I'm very worried about Austin in our future, particularly in light of COVID. I think the decisions being made now and in the next year are going to be crucial to each of our individual and collective health. And I believe that my experience as a physician and an executive leadership is going to be a necessary asset on the dais uh, to help us move forward. Great. Thank you so much. Um, all right, Laura, do you want to go ahead and take a look at our question list there and pick one you like and, and ask our candidates next? Yeah, let's do it. Um, I Let's go ahead and head into, well, you know what, I do have a specific question for Jimmy. So some of these questions will uh, technically influence uh, everybody and be directed to anybody. But Jimmy, I know you work closely with Austin's LGBT Chamber of Commerce. Uh, in the midst of COVID, where do you see space for the gays to get more involved in community work in Austin? Or what are the gays overlooking in this moment for more community engagement? The gays, yes. Los gays, they Austin. You know, I, I'm, I'm glad you asked, Laura. One of the, the things that has really struck me in this last couple of weeks is you know, once again, our community identity is turning into a political debate instead of us being treated as full and equal citizens. And you see that evidence at the national level with the Supreme Court justices wanting to reevaluate marriage equality. It's certainly an affront to the values of Austin and, and this community. But what I have always encouraged LGBTQ folks to do is to get involved in your neighborhood associations, get involved in the issues and the nonprofits that really speak to you. You can get involved politically, you can get involved in political campaigns, and there are certainly many of those to do. And, and I've been uh, excited to see that even happen in District 6. We've had a few folks join neighborhood associations and then have been great uh, uh, pipelines of information and work uh, for my office to their neighborhoods. And, and I just encourage folks to, you know, don't be afraid to be the gay in the room, if that's what it's going to be, and encourage your friends to join you in, in all the different ways you can engage. Um, maybe I'll throw one in to ask Jennifer, kind of along the lines of a specific question for her candidate. Um, you mentioned you're a doctor. Obviously, we're in the middle of a public health crisis. Um, you, you touched on it kind of in your introduction, but what do you feel like you can bring to the table that is not is missing on city council, and specifically when we're talking about dealing with this pandemic, public health issues, access to healthcare, things like that? During this, I've been serving on executive leadership teams at the hospital, also led my practices and staff's implementation of how we were going to make changes 
to be able to continue to care for patients and what my partners and I and our call groups all needed to do on the deck. You know, as an obstetrician, women in labor um, present a particular challenge for us and we, we have definitely had um, COVID positive cases come through. And I'm pleased to say that of the frontline health workers in our facility, uh, we've had about a less than 1% conversion rate uh, in positivity. And in my, in my practice, none of my staff have contracted COVID, um, although we've been caring for some folks that, that have been exposed to COVID or come in COVID positive, or we later find out are COVID positive. I also take care of a lot of um, at-risk communities and at-risk members and have done a lot of education one-on-one on how people can protect themselves and what they need to do to be careful and protect their families. On the dais, I think I can act as a very important bridge between the medical community and the fiscal decisions and policy decisions that we need to make on the council over the next year. You know, we're going to be, the pandemic's going to take a little bit. If you look at history and the natural course of, of viruses during a pandemic, we're going to have some waves and some rides, and we really want to keep that to a minimum. Minimum loss of life, minimum loss of livelihoods that we're seeing. So uh, I think some of the public messaging, public health messaging, some of the education pieces, I can be very helpful with. And like I said, I can speak both sides of the language on the medical side and then also to the patient side or you know, the citizen side. Right. And then Dee, just to round it out there, again, kind of um, pulling on your background a bit, um, I noticed on your website, you mentioned you've worked in emergency management for um, a good portion of your career. Um, we're, we're having troubles right now, obviously. We're, what we're in is a bit of a state of emergency. What kind of, um, you know, what do you feel like you could bring to the dais that's different, unique? What, how could you leverage your professional background to help us through this particular time we're in? First, let me, let me start off by saying that Austin and Travis County has an outstanding Office of Emergency Management. I've known their staff. I've known the new staff, that some of the new staff they've had to hire on to deal with the pandemic and all the other assorted everyday disasters that we have to deal with. Um, one thing that, that I specialized in not only was, was planning, uh, so we have to look at how can we do better next time. You know, when you do your, your threat assessments, uh, we need to have a really well-defined SWOT analysis, which stands for strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, as well as a root cause analysis. You know, where did things go wrong and why? And you get down to the, you know, to the, the root of the problem, you know, who did what, when, and how it worked or it didn't work. That's part and parcel of planning and strat strategic planning and emergency management, as well as preparedness. Also making sure that you're letting the community know exactly what kind of federal benefits they qualify for. And that not only includes the, uh, you know, the, the individuals, but uh, different community groups. There are a lot of community groups out there working now uh, to mitigate the impact of COVID in their communities, but they might not be aware of whether or not they can qualify for uh, FEMA public assistance grants under emergency protective measures. The public assistance grants during COVID are extremely limited and they're extremely focused, but you can explain to people and 
organizations the best way they can qualify to get reimbursed for a lot of the expenses that they've had. Um, I've seen some uh, muddled messaging, uh, like the messaging uh, Dr. Muschteller uh, referred to. And I think we could do a much better job messaging, especially during the pandemic, as we prepare for the second wave that's gonna come at us, you know, any month now. Yeah. All right. Laura, do you wanna pick another question there? Maybe our transportation one, or what, what do we have on our list? What looks good to you? Yeah, um, let's take a look. Um, so, yeah, I know um, Project Connect, uh, a big deal with Prop A uh, coming up. Uh, I, I'd love to go around and hear uh, people talk about any misconceptions about Project Connect uh, that you perhaps would like to clear up. And your opinions on it too, I guess. And well, maybe we'll, it, yeah. yeah, let's start with uh, Jennifer. Great, yeah, this is, voters really need to take a good hard look at this. And if you wanna do some more research on it, um, KUT recorded a views and brews that presented kind of a pro-con analysis of the, of the Proposition A and Project Connect, and, and I think that's got a lot of good information. But in a nutshell, um, I think people need to understand, first and foremost, this is a direct property tax that will appear on their 2021 um, property taxes. And so whether it's a home or a business that's going to affect you. And even if you're a renter, that's going to affect you too, because when the, you know, when the costs go up, any of us who have had to rent before or renting currently know that that just gets passed right through to us in our, in our rental rates. Um, one of the things that concerns me about, there's two things particularly that concern me about the project. Um, the first is that if you look at the initial investment and you study it on the CAP Metro website and what they've got, uh, people need to understand exactly what they're getting in that $7 billion because the pretty color glossy is kind of the, the, the big idea and the goal to get to, whereas what we're actually starting with is a, is a fragment of that. The voters are going to contribute a little over $3 billion. And then the, that construction actually relies on a grant from the feds. And we need another three plus billion from the federal government. And although they've done a good job in assessing what typically is gonna qualify for those kind of grants, we actually don't have that grant. And when I've gone back and asked CAP Metro folks, okay, so what happens if we approve it, but we don't get the grant? Crickets. And now you've approved a tax, a never ending tax without a good alternative plan if for some reason we don't get the federal grant money. And with COVID going on and the financials, and I'm, I'm sure the others are gonna to speak to this, you know, not only is it an individual question, okay, this is an important investment, can I afford to do this now or do I need to put food on my table? Um, but the federal government's gonna be doing the same thing when they analyze projects, what they can afford to invest in now versus what's gonna to have to wait in the future. Right. And what about you, Jimmy? Obviously, um, as a current council member, you um, have had more, a little bit more of a role in shaping this or at least voting to put it on the ballot. Um, any misconceptions and also kind of your overall take on it? Yeah, you know, it, it's a big plan. It's the, the big plan that Austinites have been asking for. You know, I, I ran for office the first time in 2014. There was a rail bond on that election that I did not support because it was not comprehensive enough. It didn't look out into the future. It didn't say what phase two or three or four could be. And, and as such, it didn't make sense that you could trust the first investment to lead to the second. Uh, this plan is comprehensive and people generally think it's the right plan. 
The, the details are a rail that, that runs down the spine of the city from, from uh, 183 all the way to Ben White on Lamar, like Guadalupe, Lamar, Guadalupe, and then rail out to the airport. Uh, and then there are also improvements to the rest of the system. You know, District 6 is the one part of town that has a train line now, the red line. Uh, and, you know, back in the before times and the long, long ago when uh, people were uh, not working from home as much and days that will, that will return, I certainly have Zoom fatigue. I don't know if other folks have Zoom fatigue, but uh, improvements to the red line go first. They're the first investment that happened in that project. We're going to take those trains from 30 minutes to 15 minute headways. You're going to be able to get to more destinations on more trains, you'll be able to take uh, transfer downtown and get all the way to the airport. Uh, those are the types of improvements that will happen. There'll also be better commuter service, there'll be better bus service, more high capacity types of transit that will serve parts of town that have never had that type of transit before. Uh, but the other pieces that are important is that it is a long-term sustainable funding source in the ways that other communities have failed to provide. It doesn't just fund the construction, it funds the operations and the maintenance over the long-term. So we're not going to make the mistakes that other communities have made where they put in some fancy rail and they forget to tell you how much it's going to cost to run it. And then the third piece that, I, that I'm really excited about is the independent oversight board to take politics out of the construction project so that we're actually building the right system in the right way to the right people at the right time. And that's the type of modern transportation system that the community really needs. Okay, great. And then I want to make sure Dee has a chance as well to share um, your thoughts on Prop A, any misconceptions, what you're hoping voters take a look at? Uh, yeah, let me start off by saying I agree with everything Dr. Mushtar said. So I'm not going to repeat what she said. What I would like to do is call your attention to Boston's Big Dig project. Uh, it started back in, oh, what, 19, in the 1980s. And it was supposed to cost $2 billion dollars and it was supposed to be done in 10 years. Well, it finally finished in 2007, about 25 years later. Uh, and instead of costing in the neighborhood between two and $3 billion, it cost $22 billion. And I'm afraid that's what we're gonna get into, especially with the downtown tunnel or whatever they decide to call it. Um, I don't wanna see that happen in Austin. Um, and I think the, the problem with it right now is all the data that was used to determine where the routes need to be and where the train should go and where everything should happen was all what I like to call the before times, uh, before COVID hit. And so our data points are changing every day as we speak. You know, where people are working is changing. You know, the state offices and state agencies are rethinking their footprints. So we're not gonna have, you know, 45,000 state employees commuting downtown to those big giant state buildings every day anymore. Uh, they're looking at how can, you know, they're trying to figure out ways to save money. And the easiest way for any business to save money is to cut their office space and office rental footprint. And that's what I, I you know, while I think it's a good concept overall, I think that the timing is wrong right now because we can't afford it, especially if we get a, the housing bubble bursts like it's done in the past. It's cyclic, uh, like the housing bubble burst in the 80s. And I remember living here before and watching all the homes in my neighborhood being foreclosed on because people lost their jobs just like they're doing now. Thank you. Yeah. 
I saw I saw a bunch of hands and thoughts fly. I could see people writing things down too. So I don't want to um, spend too much more time on this, but I, I am going to let the candidates each go back around maybe 30 seconds. I'm going to try and keep you to it a bit more if you have another follow-up comment, because I know I could see some people scribbling some things. Um, so Jimmy, we'll start with you again. Um, after hearing some of the other candidates or anything else like that you want to bring up about transportation, Prop A. Well, like I said, it's it's a it's the right plan for the future of the city. Um, you know, when when we've talked to to state leaders, I talked to Representative Celia Israel. She used to serve on the Transportation Committee in the House. She's brought a telecommuting bill multiple times to the legislature. The governor has continued to veto it. At the same time, the state government is building new office buildings downtown. That's happening right now. They are actually consolidating their staff into downtown. And one of the differences of Austin, as it is to other communities we have a much higher percentage of employment downtown than other cities do. And that only makes a transportation system like this run more efficiently and make it benefit that many more people. All right, and Jennifer, um, anything else you wanted to add on to this conversation? A couple of points and thanks Steve for yours. Um, uh, it's self-sustaining because it's a tax that never ends. Don't forget that. And while we're trying to talk about affordability and housing, and I know you guys are gonna get to that, this goes against that goal. Um, secondly, the, uh, the board is not independent. The members are gonna be jointly appointed and some of that comes from city council. So who you elect to city council may affect who gets appointed to that board. Third, the trains that are, that are going, the main line is that orange line and that's a north-south line. So if you're coming from east to west, you have to get to it and then if you wanna get out to the airport, you have to take another connection. So think about doing this with your luggage, your children, their strollers, their car seats. You know, when you start to think about point to point, it makes less and less sense. And I would double down on what Dee said in that things are gonna be changing in the commutes and the patterns. I'd rather take that money and invest in more electric vehicles. And I'd rather see Austin become a smart city with better utility for um, connectivity. All right, and Dee, any last thoughts on transportation, Prop A, Project Connect? Um, yes, again, I agree with Dr. Mushtower. Um, what I'm concerned with is that, yes, we've had telecommuting bills that have failed in the legislature in the past, but that was in the before times, before COVID. And, uh, you know, you just can't say like, oh my goodness, blink and build a giant building in downtown Austin. The, the state office buildings that are under construction now have been planned for decades. Um, and you, once the building starts, you can't stop it unless you're like Intel that left that shell of a bill in downtown a building in downtown Austin for years before somebody finally bought it and tore it down and started over again. But you know, you've got to figure out that how things have changed. And I think the data points that we're using uh, to design this process and these things is, are just old and out of date given COVID. I would like to see more electric charging stations for vehicles spread across the city. Um, you know, I'd love to buy a Tesla, but I, I live in mortal fear of running out of juice driving around around town or wherever I, I wind up wanting to go. So until that time, I'll continue driving my old gas guzzler, which is not really a gas guzzler. It's, it's a wonderful four-cylinder Honda, <laughs> 200,000 miles on it. Thanks, T. 
Um, obviously for this one, there's lots to talk about. I'll remind people again that what we're talking about here is Prop A. This is going to be on your ballot in November, $7.1 billion project around pretty a massive build out of our public transportation system. You can find more information about it um, on a whole bunch of different places and a bunch of different voting guides, but, but um, the city's website and austintexas.gov has an election section. We've done quite a few posts on it. Um, and we also have a podcast. Um, if you scroll back, there were episodes about this as well. If you are just joining us, you are listening to the co-op podcast of the Austin Common Radio Hour with host Amy Stainsbury and guest host Laura De La Fuente, an Austin writer and performer. We have three candidates running for the Austin City Council District 6 in our forum today. Incumbent Jimmy Flanagan, Dee Harrison, and Jennifer Mushtaller. They are discussing issues affecting our Austin community. Let's get back to the candidate forum. Laura, do you want to go ahead? What's our next question? Uh, maybe a fun one? Should we maybe lighten it up a one? bit? <laughs> sure, let's do, let's do a fun one. Um, okay, so... How about uh, we're all at home, we're all cooped up during quarantine. What has been your go-to Austin takeout spot? Um, yes, it's it's what I affectionately known as the call the hole in the wall, not the one down on, on downtown by, I'm sorry, down by UT. Uh, but it's a wonderful little Mexican restaurant uh, that's family owned and operated and has been in the neighborhood of, of Anderson Mill and off Pond Springs Road. It's recently moved, but that is my go-to. I can call them up. They laugh. They recognize my voice. They know exactly what I'm going to order. Uh, but every now and then I change it up just to keep them on their toes. <laughs> and what was that called, D? that place? It's Hardin Corona. Hardin Corona. And what do you right, get? Right now. now I got to know, what's your order? Uh, well, they have something. Oh, God, I'm going to mess it up. <laughs> the, uh, fajita Burrito Picosa, uh, which is basically a grilled chicken burrito, and it's fabulous. And I always tell them to add extra jalapenos. Yeah, let's go. Let's hear Jennifer. Jennifer, what's your next spot? <laughs> well, we lost uh, in District 6. We lost Napa Flats, Tom's Restaurant, and I hope you're going to come back, Tom. We'll, we're going to support you. We tried. We tried to frequent that. But I also like um, Green Mango um, Thai food. I, I love the family there, and we're we're a pretty regular customer of theirs. I always, I always judge good tie by their curry and man, they, they can crank it up spicy. It's awesome. Um, and then to, to round it out, we do brick oven pizza as well. All right, Jimmy, close it out. I, I love that D I love that you brought up Hardy and Corona. I'm so excited to try their new location moving, moving from the hole in the wall into that new, and they did it in the middle of a pandemic, like the worst possible timing. Uh, I would always get the mole enchiladas when I would go to Harding Corona. Uh, my go-to takeout is uh, uh, Asia Market and Asia Cafe, which is in the strip mall at McNeil 183, uh, locally owned uh, Asian businesses there. Uh, I'm a big fan of Kirby Lane. I'm a go-to Kirby Lane guy. Um, I get that far too often. Uh, Eastside Pies, we've got an Eastside Pies up in District 6. That's a good delivery option. Uh, and I am a connoisseur of pad thai. And so mung thai is probably my favorite one. I don't want to offend any Thai restaurants. That one's in District 6. Uh, but there's all kinds of great uh, Asian food in District 6. It is the, the, all the council districts has the largest Asian community. And so we've got some really great 
family owned and locally owned businesses up here. Laura, I got to ask you now, what's your go-to? What's your go-to? Oh man, my go-to, I tell you what, uh, so, so I'm right here on, on E6. I go to Joe's Tacos um, and Bakery. They have the best uh, bean and cheese on flour in the city, a, a, a homemade flour tortilla, the, the lard, the cheese, um, and then the hot <laughs> green salsa. And then it, oh no, and you bite it and it drips everywhere. Um, it is my, my favorite meal in town, my favorite. That's been our, our go-to the chorizo and egg, dormigas con todo. Um, and then we'll get some conchas or some yellow and pink cookies also. Um, that's been my yum yum go-to. Uh, what about you, Amy? What's been your go-to? Oh, I have lots. I, uh... yeah, I, know, right? <laughs> um, I really like um, Sour Duck uh, Market. It's pretty close to me. So it's a nice little walkable spot. And I'm also a big home slice pizza fan. I, we eat a lot of pizza. That's my <laughs> go-to. And I'm originally from the Northeast. So home slice has a little place in my heart. You know, they serve that more New York style pizza. And they were like the first restaurant I ever ate at when I moved to Austin. <laughs> um, yeah. Oh man, awesome. now I'm hungry. Okay, so I as much as I would too. like to talk we about all food up. all day, mm -hmm. I'm gonna um, switch it up and we're gonna go back to politics. <laughs> um, I wanna make sure we have some time to talk about um, a big issue that city council has been dealing with um, for quite a few years now, um, which is homelessness. So um, this has become a pretty big and contentious issue if people um, have been, or only casual observers of the news in Austin, I think you probably even have heard of this, right? So um, obviously we have a big homelessness issue in Austin. Um, and I think the real question is, well, what do we do about it, right? <laughs> um, and so that's where the debate comes in. Jimmy, I'm gonna let you start because um, I'm wondering if maybe you can start by giving a little bit of a recap of what city council has done lately. And then obviously this is an issue that is not resolved. So um, you mentioned it even in your intro. Um, if you're reelected, what are the things you're hoping to focus on in the future? Thank, thank you. Yeah, this, this is, there's not enough time left in the show to really get into all the details, but I will try to be succinct. Uh, as, as they say, uh, many of the service providers that I talk to talk about wanting homelessness to be brief, rare and non-recurring. It's, it's, a, it's a social and public health crisis that you can't just check the box and solve. It's a constant challenge that you have to deal with. Even more so in cities that are strong economically, like Austin has been for so many years, because you have folks that when they get into crisis, they start to fall through the cracks. So in order to address this problem, you have to build the system that intervenes at the moment people get into crisis. And that's the system the council has been working to build. We've made major investments in the last two city council budgets. We've made those investments on the front end in workforce development and rapid rehousing. We've made investments in permanent supportive, permanent supportive housing on the back end for the folks who have been chronically homeless for a long time. Uh, and, and part of the challenge for those folks is mental health and substance abuse in many cases because those issues might have been small that led to the initial crisis, but then they're exacerbated once they're on the street. And you have to have this comprehensive system built and we are making significant progress, but unfortunately it's not going fast enough. And you know, I am as frustrated as anybody to see camping, to see camping under overpasses. It's not a great option. It's not a long-term option. It's not healthy, it's not safe, uh, but it is better than people being in the shadows than especially women who are experiencing homelessness were facing a lot of violence uh, by not being visible. And then service providers have also talked about the criminalization that was happening more than a year ago 
was preventing those folks from access, accessing services, especially when those services came with state and federal dollars with certain restrictions. So you have to build a comprehensive system and, and by no means are we finished, uh, by no means is the work done, uh, but you have to be able to address both the public health and the housing crises. And then there's a third part. You know, I chair the Public Safety Committee for the Council, and we're going to be doing more public meetings on this in short order. But there's also the, the, the public safety issue where there's a very small percentage of folks who are housing insecure or who are on the street that are committing crime. And what we've seen in the crime stats is that if someone is, is experiencing homelessness, they're more likely to be a victim of crime than a perpetrator. But it's not that there are no perpetrators. And the challenge that we've seen, we talk to our officers and we talk to the criminal justice system advocates, is that if you're a repeat offender in property crime, there's no system to help, help you get out of that vicious cycle. We don't put people in jail for life for a fifth property crime. That's just not how it works under the constitution. But we don't have the solutions from the county and the state leaders on what those tools need to be. The city's job ends when they take them to central booking. And APD still does that. And I've talked to property owners who are like, but it's this one guy and he keeps doing it. And APD keeps taking, picking them up and taking them to central booking. So I've also spoken with our, with our state reps, with Vicki Goodwin, who, who represents kind of the 620 area of my council district, about re-engaging a criminal justice conversation at the legislature that used to be bipartisan. Two or three sessions ago, it was, it was bipartisan. And I'm really hopeful that once we get past the, the craziness of an election, we can get back to the place where we're working on criminal justice issues in a bipartisan manner, because we can't keep investing in policing that criminalizes if we're not investing in the solutions that help prevent people from reoffending. And Jennifer, what about you? Um, homelessness obviously is a big issue here in Austin. If you were elected, what would you like to see city council do or do differently than what's happening right now? Well, I definitely would have liked to have seen a different approach on the issue. I mean, I think, I, you know, I think uh, Jimmy and some of the others acted precipitously. You know, they, they, they don't understand the complexity of the issues and uh, it's, it's created a public health endangerment. It is a safety issue. Um, and Jimmy knows this in our district around our elementary schools. Um, and it's affected the livability and the workability for people who are actually paying the taxes. That being said, the goal is not to criminalize people for being homeless. We understand that the, when, when folks end up in this kind of situation and they can't lift out, it's extremely complex. And unfortunately, when you, when you reverse it and then you don't have any mechanism for dealing with it, the problem just grows. And so we have a growing problem. Um, we hotels don't solve the problem we have austin per capita has the highest number of organizations and and people in our communities are doing fantastic work i'm really so impressed with everything that's going on out at community first but some of the stuff that they describe that they need as tools to help people lift out and reduce the rates of recidivism you know, when we talk about getting them into housing, we need something and we have so much burdensome stuff in our permitting and what we can do within the city confines that some of the reasonable solutions become untenable because government is working against itself. And some of those cost-effective solutions, we can't get past um, restrictions to do. And so that moves outside of the city limits and out into the county where 
we can do things that actually just make sense and get the resources that people need to surround them and build that sense of community to help keep them focused on their path to recovery. So you bring in your mental health resources, you bring in your substance abuse counselors, you have your back to work and jobs integration programs and the transportation that they need to get where they need to go or that it's right there so they can do it because some of these folks are gonna have trouble just getting on a bus or getting on a train and going where they need to go. It all needs to be right there and be contained so that they can have stability for an extended amount of time and then maybe make that transition out. And then Dee, what about you? And what can we be doing about homelessness? I'll be the first person to admit that I don't know the answer uh, because I don't think there is a singular answer to the uh, problem uh, surrounding homelessness or the uh, what is it that the, the unhomed or whatever the current politically correct terminology is for uh, people who are unhoused. Um, but I do know enough to know that there are smarter people than I am who are working on this problem. And to me, the best solution is to bring those people to the table and listen to what they have to say. Don't, you know, twist what they're telling you into something that, uh, provides for your own political agenda. Um, so far, the city has been addressing chronic homelessness. And there's nothing wrong with that, but that's only a small part of the homeless issue that we're fixing to face. You know, when they let up on the uh, ban in courts on foreclosures and evictions, we're gonna see an absolute flood of newly homeless people. Uh, they've been evicted, so they're not gonna be able to go rent a new apartment right away unless they can get somebody else to rent it for them and sublet or however they're gonna be able to do it. It's gonna be a lot of people with no place to go. And we're talking not just people in the more at-risk communities, we're talking you know, people right on the cusp of middle class. Um, more families, more children, and it's going to impact all across the city, not just on one side or the other side, and it's going to impact District 6 the same as it is every other district in the city. And we have to be prepared for that, and we have to have a plan for that. And I don't see the city doing anything for the people that I predict are going to come become homeless in the near future. Thank you. Yeah, I want to, um, you know, this is a topic, like Jimmy said, we could talk about this for hours. I, I want to kind of follow up a little bit. We don't have a ton of time left, but I do want to, like, this is something that I find difficult too, Laura. I don't know if you're, you know, you follow this issue. It's it's hard. And I've lived in a lot of other cities before. And, you know, I I haven't really been to one that I, I've said, yes, they're, you know, really, you know, people are housed and everyone is taken care of, right? At least, no, um, no. Yeah. So it's tricky, but, um, you know, maybe I'll start with you, Jennifer. I, I'm, I'm curious, you know, I, I, I hear a lot of people's um, concern come out and say, um, maybe, maybe the city council's changes that they made um, were too soon. I think you, you kind of hinted at that, right? That, um, that we need both, that you need, um, that you need the services to provide people with the housing. 
but but then my question is, I guess, like, do you think that we would do both, you know, because sometimes I think the counter argument is, well, we needed people, you know, to a certain extent, we might not even try and invest the money to fix the problem if we don't see it in front of our face, and it's hard to avoid. How do you balance that, you know what I mean, as far as making sure that we don't just ignore the issue, but that we would actually invest the money in it? It's a it's a tough question, and it is a little bit of a chicken the egg. But you you know we see this in mental health too. If if somebody's having an acute mental health crisis, you've got to go through a series of steps and justifications to detain somebody uh, for their health or the health of somebody else. So you do need a legal mechanism. We talk about reinstating the camping ban you need a mechanism to be able to move people out of that location. If it's legal to be there, you have no way of moving them on if they say, well, I don't want to go. <laughs> um, so you do need a legal mechanism. Now, I don't want to see people get a criminal record for that, but we've got to, and I think the council is trying to walk back on that. I think they recognize that. So I think we need to, we've got some of the beginnings of this in place, but one, we need a legal mechanism so that we can protect the livability of people that, you know, need to be able to get to places or go to places for their jobs and schools and things like that. Um, two, from a public health perspective, we can't forget that in other parts of the countries where they've done this experiment, we see TB, we see syphilis, we see hepatitis, we see cholera come on the rise. Austin Public Health is monitoring this in our homeless folks and keeping an eye on this, but it can't stay the way it is. So one, you need a legal mechanism, and then two, you need a, a triage mechanism. So once you say, okay, can't stay here, we're going to come here and figure things out, then we need the triage mechanism to figure out which of our programs are going to best match them in the right direction, at least to begin to start. And, and Jimmy, I want to give you a chance to come back in here. Obviously, this has been something I'm sure as a council member, you've received a lot of letters, emails, phone calls about this. Um, how do you how do you balance that nuance of it? You know, I think it's easy to say, oh, people who want to reinstate the ban just don't care about homelessness. Right. You know, but but like what about what 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 about the the argument or the conversation around what else can we be doing um, to make sure that. Um, our homeless neighbors are housed or what more can city council be doing? How do you kind of balance that in your mind or? Well, I, let me tell you a story that I was holding a town hall. This was maybe a year ago. It was before all of this and um, or before the pandemic. And uh, there was a constituent there who was frustrated with the, the presence of homelessness, right? As we all are. And she explained about, she told a story about a family member of hers who was homeless, who went to California because they were giving him a free phone and it was going to be nicer for him. And she was concerned that that was going to happen in Austin. And I asked her, one, that, that you know, she hadn't taken care of her own family in that way, but two, what should we do with, with this family member? Should we put them in jail? And they replied, well, no, he hasn't committed a crime. And, and that's exactly the point. It is not and should not be illegal to not have housing. The problem is where? That's obviously the problem. And until we can fully answer the question of where people can be, it is not fair to say where they can't be in such a way that they can be nowhere. 
And the, the point of this has always been that we are building a system where that question can have a humane and fair and safe answer that helps folks, that help folks who get into crisis get back out of crisis and into self-sufficiency. And we're seeing that while that system is not big enough yet, and we have been scaling it faster than any other council in history, that that system is already working. We're getting people not just off the street, but we're getting them into self-sufficiency. And when you build the system in the right way and you scale it to the right scale, you'll be able to get there. I, I believe we are just a couple of years out from being there because obviously you also can't just double the the amount of money you're putting in because you still got to have EMS, you still got to have fires, still got to have parks and libraries. And so it takes time to build these systems. It takes time to build facilities and to hire staff and to train them. And and that's the, the program that we're doing. It's not ever going to go as fast as we want, but it is historic in the way that we are approaching it now. And those systems are already starting to work. We're running a little short on time, but Dee, I want to make sure you have one last chance here. Any final thoughts on homelessness and Austin's efforts to house the homeless? I'd like to remind everybody about Maslow's hierarchy of needs. Uh, you know, if you remember the pyramid that you studied in school, the bottom, very bottom of the pyramid is food, shelter, and clothing. Right now, we ha our problem is we have no place to shelter. And in my decades of work with disaster survivors, the first thing you have to provide for any disaster survivor is a place to live or a place to stay, stay sheltering, if you will. We already know how to shelter people in this country, especially in Austin. We sheltered thousands of Katrina evacuees. We sheltered thousands of Hurricane Ike and Hurricane Harvey evacuees here in Austin. We shouldn't be reinventing the wheel. And that's the main problem I have with it. We know how to do this. We've done it for other events and incidents. We should take those lessons we've learned and apply them to the problems that we're facing now. Thank you. Great. All right, we've only got a few minutes left. Um, Laura, do we have any other uh, fun questions on our list we could kind of close out with? Oh man, Halloween candy stands out. Let's just ask it. Halloween candy, favorite Halloween candy. D, go first. Chocolate, <laughs> chocolate, chocolate. <laughs> chocolate, chocolate, chocolate from D. I love my favorite candy bar. Chocolate, chocolate, chocolate. Uh, let's see. Jennifer, you go. Quick, quick, quick. Do you eat candy? Reese's peanut butter cup. Reese's peanut butter cups, yes. Jimmy, you go quick, quick. All, 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 the, all the candy bars. Those were all always the most prized. The fun size, the mid size, the full size. That's the way to go. At one time. That sounds great. And what about you, Laura? What's your fave? My favorite candy? Oh, man. Oh, shoot. You know, I really like the strawberry sour belts, but the ones that are like little picosos that mm -hmm. hurt for 20, 48 hours after I eat yeah, them. Yeah, you get like bumps on your mouth. Sure, <laughs> or in other intestinal regions. Yes, <laughs> that, that is my favorite. That's one of my favorites. Nice. What about you, Amy? You know, I'm going to say something controversial that I know a lot of people don't agree with, but I like candy corn. I'm a candy corn fan. Uh, I know that's crazy. Artificial <laughs> butter flavor. That I is. love it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I agree. No. <laughs> okay, cool. Um, we are just about at the end here. Um, I'll just remind everyone again that October 13th, early voting starts. It lasts through October 30th. So you have lots of time to vote. And then election day is November 3rd. Um, and as always, remember to keep scrolling down your ballot and 
um, find these candidates there. Um, all these city council races are towards the end of your ballot and they can often be the most important aspect of it. Um, Laurel, I want to give you one more chance to uh, plug how can people hear you, um, listen to your comedy right now. Oh my gosh, right now, uh, tonight, uh, Friday, the 9th of October, uh, tune into Quarantine. If it's not Friday when you're listening, which it isn't, uh, tune in two weeks from now. Uh, <laughs> you can go to Cold Town TV, uh, let's see, twitch.tv backslash Cold Town TV and tune into Quarantine as, as well as any other offerings that Cold Town has, is um, putting up. Awesome. All right, you can find podcasts of our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, and Google on Google Podcast, to learn more about The Austin Common, you can visit our website at theaustincommon.com or follow us on Instagram at the underscore Austin underscore common. Uh, the show uh, today was hosted by myself, Amy Sansbury, and co-hosted by Lara. Thanks again. Of course. Happy to, happy to have been here. Ah, and produced by John Hoffner um, and broadcast out of KOOP Studios, which is a cooperatively run community radio station based here in Austin, Texas. To listen to more of KOOP's amazing lineup of shows, you can visit koop.org or tune in to 91.7 FM. All right. Thank you all.